If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 15 this morning. John chapter 15. It has been said, if you want to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. If that's true, and I imagine it is, imagine what it is like to have to preach a sermon on prayer. There is probably an assumption that you're, if you're going to have something to say that is of any value, of any meaning, then you have it all put together, that you are a man of prayer and understand it well. Thus is one who does not have it all together, thus one who is not a man who prays as he should, pre- preaching a sermon on prayer instills a kind of fear, as if someone has told me I must go and touch the ark. Yet Tony Payne is surely right when he says, on the one hand, prayer seems to be the most natural and spontaneous thing in the world. He says most people on the planet pray at least some time in their life, usually without giving it much thought or considering it difficult. Children pray, often with disarming simplicity and ease. When difficulty or danger threatens, the immediate response of many is to pray. Yet for Christians, prayer can seem like anything but the easiest thing in the world. We know we ought to pray. We feel almost instinctively that prayer should be at the center of our lives. Yet few areas of the Christian walk cause such a sense of failure and guilt. Few things are so agonizingly difficult as consistent prayer. Few things make us feel less like a Christian as when we have gone long periods of time without prayer. I think Payne is right. and I think he accurately describes the tension that we feel as God's people. When we look to the Bible, prayer is all over the place. Some form of the word prayer, that is pray, praying, prayed, prayer, occurs over 500 times in our Bibles. Moreover, not including almost all of the Psalms, which are essentially prayers to God, we see over 200 actual prayers of people recorded for us in the Bible. Why? Why does God give such attention to this religious practice in his book. Well, it's because prayer is more than just a religious practice. For Christians, prayer is more than a duty to do. It is part of the way we cultivate our relationship with the living God. As we demonstrated last week, the entirety of the Christian life is built upon two twin pillars, prayer and the word. For in these things, our fellowship with God is both established and deepened. Through his word, the Bible, God speaks to his people. And through prayer, God's people speak to him. Therefore, it's not just important but essential that we get these two things right in our life. If we want to have a relationship with God, we must be hearing from him and his word, and we must be calling out to him in prayer. Given the time we have this morning, I cannot possibly deliver the final word on prayer. Nevertheless, I want to point you in the right direction, and I hope to give you hope. I hope to give you hope that will help you to develop a longing that God himself has already put in your heart as his people, namely to call out to him in prayer. And I hope to give you confidence to answer that call to prayer, even as I impart some practical instruction on the practice of prayer. And to do that, we want to look at this passage that we saw last week 
John 15. Again, the context of our passage is that this is the final hours of Jesus' life, earthly life before he goes to the cross. He has gathered his disciples together to celebrate Passover and to show them how the redemption of Israel from Egypt and centuries of sacrifices in remembrance of that deliverance were all pointing to him. That he is going to be the perfect sacrifice, ending all others. For in him and in him alone will perfect atonement be found. It's in the context of these final words to his disciples that we see in John chapter 15, Jesus saying this. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in me, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer shall I call, do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. May God bless the reading of his word. Last week we saw what it meant to be abiding in the word of God. And this week we want to see what it means to be asking from the word of God. That is praying according to the instruction and hope given in God's word. And the first thing that we see is this, that we should ask from abiding fellowship. We should ask from abiding fellowship. In verse 7, Jesus gives us this amazing promise, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now many have ran with that verse and preached all kinds of craziness and advocated all kinds of shenanigans. And this is an example of why context is important. Notice what happens if you actually quote the whole verse. If you abide in me, And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus himself conditions the promise of prayer with this important caveat. Ask whatever you wish if you are abiding in me. The language of abiding or remaining, as some translations have, speaks to our fellowship with God. It speaks to the communion we have with Christ. It is from this communion then, this relationship, this fellowship we have with Christ, it is from this context that we launch off into bold prayer to God the Father. In other words, the very basis for our talking to God the Father in prayer comes from our spiritual union with God's Son. This is a fellowship that we see based in love. 
It is a fellowship based in love. In verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now clearly, the Father also loves Jesus' disciples. Jesus himself says that, if you doubt it, later in chapter 16. There is also, though, a sense in which Jesus is the mediator of that love for the disciples. And here we see that the love shown to us by Christ is the same kind of love shown between the Father and the Son. In other words, it is a love that is rooted in the eternal loving fellowship of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that kind of love is most clearly evidenced in the cross. Jesus says in verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. That is exactly what Jesus did for his people. Jesus demonstrates the the kind of mysterious, glorious, interpersonal love and fellowship between himself and the Father and the Spirit in loving us, and that love is supremely demonstrated in his sacrifice for his people. In the early 1700s in Germany, some Christian refugees told about St. Martin Island in the West Indies that had more than 3,000 slaves and no church. Apparently the slave owner who ran the island was an atheist and he had not allowed any missionaries to come. No church meant no gospel being preached and no gospel being preached meant no salvation for anyone. Two men that heard this testimony in Germany were named John Leonard Dober and David Nitschman. Both were in their early 20s and both determined to somehow get to that island. For them, it was unacceptable that 3,000 men, 3,000 slaves would live and die and never hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they were not allowed to go as missionaries. So they began to petition the government to have access to this island. And when asked, how are you going to go? How are you going to support yourselves? How are you going to go if you're not able to be missionaries? They said simply this, if we have to, we are prepared to sell ourselves into slavery that we might be among the slaves and so share the gospel of Christ. These men were prepared to give up anything and everything. To see those slaves hear about Christ. They were literally willing to lay down their lives and their freedom for them. I love stories like that. I I like stories that speak to self-sacrifice. We see it all the time in history. We see it especially in wartime. Sometimes we even see it in the context of sports. Certainly in fiction. We see entire books and movies crafted around this idea of self-sacrifice. Sacrifice, And I think part of the reason it resonates with me and so many others as it is so popular in our culture is because all of those stories are simply echoes of the one true story of sacrifice for others, namely the true and perfect sacrifice of Christ for his people. His was not just a sacrifice that might allow someone to escape punishment or death, but a sacrifice that allows someone to escape the very wrath of a holy God pouring out his wrath on them for all of eternity, justly for their sins. 
Moreover, the sacrifice not only annuls that judgment that we deserve, but comes at the end of a righteous life that is counted towards all who put their faith in Jesus, that they might not only be forgiven, but have a righteous standing before God. There is therefore no greater proof of Christ's love for his disciples than his willingness to experience the cross for them. And the question is, how do we respond to that love? How do we respond to the love demonstrated by Christ for his people? Simply put, we love him back. We respond to his act of love with our own love towards him. We see Christ for the loving Savior that he is. We love him in return, and that love is seen in part in our trust in him, our relying on him to make us right with God, believing that the merits of his life and death will make us right with God in such a way that we will have fellowship with him. And Jesus says the test of that love, the test of our commitment to Christ, the test of whether or not we truly love him will be seen in our obedience to him. Our fellowship is seen in, is based in love. And secondly, our fellowship is seen in obedience. Our fellowship is seen in obedience. Jesus says, doesn't he, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And in the next verse, he tells us what that looks like. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you talk to people about religion and spirituality, it will not take you long to find people who will say something along the effect of, um, yeah, they, they're Christians, they love Jesus. But when you begin to press them, you'll see that, at least according to Jesus' standards, that that's not really true. I had someone tell my, my parents at, at some point as they were talking to them, uh, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm a non-practicing Christian. What does that mean? Let me non-practicing Christian. Well, in, in their mind, that meant I don't go to church. Well, that's a problem because Jesus later on says, if you love me and keep my commandments, this is my commandment. You love the brothers. Loving people implicitly, if not explicitly, requires that we be around them, right? That we have fellowship with them even as we have fellowship with Christ. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. And so people can say they love Jesus. What they mean is their understanding of Jesus, their so-called experience with Jesus, causes them to feel warm inside. It causes them to feel good about themselves or about the world or something else. And therefore, they, they have an emotional response to that emotional response. They love Jesus because he makes them feel good. And certainly I would say if you love Christ, you should have an emotional experience at some point. Hopefully, repeatedly, you should feel love for Christ. But that feeling should come beyond just what he can do for us. That, that feeling should lead us into obedience of Christ as well. Jesus makes it clear that feeling can never be bare. We love and serve a risen Savior whom God has made Lord over all things. So you cannot say, I love Jesus, but never obey him. Jesus says, unless you obey my commands, you don't really love me. Now, that doesn't mean that your life has to be perfect. It doesn't mean that you must fully obey Christ's every command or else you don't love him. No, what that means is the trajectory of your life is one of desiring obedience to Christ, of following after him as his disciples. For the Christian who truly loves Christ, obedience is not an afterthought. 
It's not a happy accident that comes from, from living your life. It is the driving, loving response of remembering the gospel every day, of waking up and remembering afresh. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. And you remember back to that bloody cross where the payment was given, the love displayed by your Savior, and you say, yes, I want to live for him. I want to serve him. I want to honor him with my life. That then is the context out of which comes Christian prayer. We're not calling out to some faceless God who may or may not care about us, sending out some last vain hope that someone is going to change our life. I saw a bumper sticker that said, when all else fails, pray. And I thought, no, 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 no. Before you try anything else, pray. That, that, that's the Christian response of prayer because you've been brought into fellowship with Almighty God who knows everything, is, can do anything. Is not that the first person we should desire to seek out? Christian prayer arises out of that abiding fellowship we have with God in Christ. A fellowship rooted in Christ's love for his people, seen in his making atonement for their sins on the cross, and evidenced by Christ's people loving him, seen in their joyful obedience to his leadership over their lives. This is why we pray, because we have an abiding fellowship with God. But how should we pray? What kinds of things should we ask for? Jesus says, behind every request, we should be asking for eternal glory. This is the second thing that we see this morning. We should ask for eternal glory. We should ask for eternal glory. Here we begin to get a sense of the ultimate reason for our fellowship with God and therefore the big picture concern for our praying. All through this passage, Jesus is describing the fellowship he has with his disciples and what that means for their spiritual maturity. Specifically, he uses this agricultural metaphor of a vineyard and vines and branches all meant to produce fruit. And thus we see that there should be, first of all, glory from our fruit. Glory from our fruit as God's people. In verse 1, Jesus is the true vine, and God the Father is the vine dresser. In verse 5, Jesus makes clear he is the vine, and his people are branches connected to him, the vine. In verse 4, these branches are meant to produce fruit. He says if you're not producing the kind of fruit that God wants, he's going to start pruning you back. Last time, uh, Melinda's parents were up here. Uh, Basically, whenever they come up, we wind up doing some project on the house. Uh, her dad uh, loves us a lot, and he is incredibly handy at all kinds of things. And, uh, and before they come up, even for a quick visit, he'll say, uh, John, Melinda, what needs to be done? What can I help you with? And the last time, he had bought me a tree trimmer. And uh, for someone who doesn't know a lot and kind of likes the idea of tools but doesn't have a lot, a tree trimmer is awesome. Okay? I mean, you've got this massive blade, and you've got this huge hook, and you're just like, and you're just like, you know, you feel like you're really accomplishing something. And, uh, and so we have this, uh, this massive uh, Rose of Sharon, I think it's called, and it's com- it was wildly overgrown. And I'm just thinking this all the time. We've got to turn this thing back. And he's like, uh, here, go, go for it. Yep, this is, this is what you need. And I said, well, how much should I trim back? And he's like, well, he says, I think you can give it a pretty good scalp. Well, that was like candy to a baby or music to your ears, whatever metaphor you like. And I'm just like, Shh. And this thing, you know, it, it, looks, it looks nice. And guess what happens? Uh, at first, I, I'm, I'm knocking off all of these buds, and I'm thinking, this, this is going to look terrible. And it was in no short time, suddenly the entire tree 
is budding and blooming. Trimming it back caused it to produce more. And that's what God says he does with us. In fact, he says he will continue to trim our lives, to cut us back, to to perhaps put us in our place, to, to make us produce more fruit. And if we never produce fruit... It shows we're not really connected to the vine in the way that we should. We don't really have faith in Christ, and therefore he will simply tear us off and throw us into the fire. A not-so-veiled reference to hell. All those who don't know Christ deserve hell because of their sin against a holy God. And so therefore, as branches connected to the vine, we are designed to produce fruit, but that only happens if We are abiding in the vine if we stay connected to Christ. Verse 4 again, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So even here, before he even begins to bring up the subject of prayer, we already are seeing the kinds of things that we should be praying for. Namely, spiritual fruit. If that's what God wants us to produce, if that's what, as we'll see in a minute, glorifies God, then isn't that what we should be praying for? Praying for fruit. More than that, we should be praying for the kinds of things that we know will help us produce fruit. If we're honest with ourselves, as James says, if we use the Bible like a mirror, seeing our natural appearance as opposed to the perfection that is there, we know there's a lot of work that needs to be done. They used to have that show, Extreme Makeover. And uh, frankly, it was kind of weird. And people would go in and and they would just completely have their face rearranged and liposuction and haircuts and they come out a completely different person. Well, spiritually speaking, that's what God wants to do in our life. He wants to begin to clean up the mess that is there. And so we may see that we need humility, we need patience, we need purity in our thoughts, and we begin to pray for those things because we know if God produces those changes in us, then our lives will naturally be closer to Christ and therefore we will produce more lasting spiritual fruit. This is the concern of our life, that our lives produce fruit that brings glory to God. In the past, I've mentioned some of the church fathers, men who were only a generation or two or three removed from the apostles, men who advanced the gospel of Christ in the early centuries of Christianity. One of them was named John Chrysostom, who was known for his preaching, an amazing preacher. In fact, you can still read some of his sermons online uh, and, and, and in books. It's interesting, though, that when I, it wasn't until I was in seminary that I realized Chrysostom is not the man's last name. I thought maybe it was even a town where he was from. You know, there's another guy named John of Damascus. I thought, well, maybe it's John of Chrysostom, and we just dropped the of. No, no, no. Chrysostom is his nickname. His nickname, Chrysostom, means golden mouth. Now, how would you like to have that for a nickname? Well, why was he named that? Because he was a good preacher. Such was the the beauty and, and the amazing way in which he proclaimed God's word. They say, man, that guy's got a golden mouth. And eventually... That's what he became known as, John Goldenmouth, John Christensen. Now, I tell you that because there's another guy. There's another man that I've mentioned before named Polycarp. Do you remember him? Polycarp learned about Christ and Christian theology from the apostle John himself. What a privilege that must have been. He was a pastor in the church who was ultimately martyred for his faith. But guess what? Like Chrysostom, the name Polycarp is not his name. It's a nickname. It's from the Greek Polycarpus. And do you know what it means? Much Fruit. Much fruit. How would you like to have that as a nickname? 
Somebody sees the totality of your life. They see the, the evidence of your intimacy and your walk with Christ. And they say, you know, that is exactly the thing Jesus was talking about in John 15. Much fruit. I think that's what we should name this guy. Much fruit. Polycarp. If we went around giving nicknames that we were not afraid to use in public for people, what would your nickname be? Would it be Polycarp? Or would it be something else? Would it be Mr. Grumpy? Or Miss Gossipy? Or how about Mrs. Having No Love? Or Mr. Idolater? What would your nickname be? What, what defines your life in the eyes, not just of God, but in the eyes of others? What, what kind of fruit are you producing with your life? God desires that our lives are meant to be marked by our fellowship with Christ through the spiritual fruit that we produce. Therefore, pray for that kind of fruit. Pray for spiritual blessing and growth, see, not just in our lives, but in our ministry. If that's what God has called us to and desires for us to produce, how would he ever deny that request? He wouldn't. He wouldn't. But when you pray for fruit, remember that you are ultimately praying for the glory of the Father. Pray for glory for the Father. It would be easy to begin praying for fruit because you crave a reputation like Polycarp. You aren't really concerned for ministry and godliness. You just want the nickname. It's a bit like becoming a Freemason just to get the ring. But listen to what Jesus says. If you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is what we bear in mind when we live and when we pray. We are ultimately seeking the glory of God the Father. And here Jesus is clear. The reason God wants us to abide in Christ is so that we will bear much fruit. And he has given us this promise of prayer that we would be praying for fruit. Why? Because when we bear much fruit, we glorify God. Jesus says the same thing later in the passage in in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. In other words, it's not temporary. It's lasting. It has eternal worth. Your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The Bible is relentlessly clear that everything God does and has done and will do is for his glory. From creation to revelation to salvation to any other Asian word you can think of, God has done it and is doing it for his glory. And if you want to see that in mind-boggling clarity and, and depth, then pick up a copy of an old book by Jonathan Edwards called The End for Which God Created the World. If you want to spend money on it, Google it. It's online for free. And what it essentially is, is Edwards walking through Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture, page after page after page, just quoting the Bible, where God says, I am doing this for my own glory. I am doing this for my own glory. I am doing this for my own glory. And you get to the end of that book, and there's only one thing that you can say, and that is God does all that he does for his glory. Therefore, when we pray and when we ask God to be at work in our life, we should be asking with the thought, how can I produce more fruit? How can I grow spiritually? How can I minister to others? And how can that ministry have a lasting effect 
And then when we pray for that kind of fruit, we pray thinking, this is really going to make me look good in front of other people. No, no. We pray, God, produce this fruit in such a way that you will receive the glory. That you will receive the glory. I have to say that probably like many people in my job, there, there, is, a, there is a razor's edge of temptation basically every day when it comes to pride. Because every day you're standing in front of people and they're just listening to you talk. It might be on a blog, it might be on Facebook, it's certainly here on Sunday mornings. People are sitting and they're listening. And that is, that is what they have called to do because you are the pastor. And there is the temptation for you to think, this is all about me. And this ministry and this sermon and all that I do is about me. About getting people to see me. About people thinking how great I am. And therefore, for at least the last five years, every single Sunday, I have stood at that front and I have prayed, God, show yourself so that when people leave, they don't say, John was a great preacher, but you were a great God. I have to pray that every single Sunday because I know in my heart of hearts what I deep down want to crave. And the beast that I have to beat back all the time is, we want, I want John to be known as a great preacher. And that does not bring glory to God. That does not produce lasting fruit that abides. And I know that my life and my ministry is a blip when it comes to the eternal perspective of God. And therefore, what do I want to do? Live out my days in vain glory for myself? No. What I want to do is do what God has called me to do. And that is leave a mark on eternity by bearing fruit that does not lift up me but lifts up him. That's what Jesus calls us to pray for. And that is why when we pray in that way, when we pray for his glory, we can pray with trusting confidence. This is the last thing that we see this morning. We should ask for things in prayer. We should ask in trusting confidence. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now again, this is one of those passages in the Bible that, is, that are often misquoted and misused, and I don't want that for you, for, so let's look at it. What does this mean? Well, Jesus makes the same promise in two different places um, in this book. As a matter of fact, in this course of, of giving these disciples this last teaching. And in both of these other cases, we get something of a further explanation for what he is saying here. So, for example, we already saw verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask, what's the caveat? Whatever you ask in my name, he may give it to you. And then we see earlier in John 14, he tells his disciples, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so we have, bringing these things together then, I think, a more complete picture of the promise in verse 7. I think the other two especially help make clear what he is saying here. Namely, that the promise given the disciples is not a carte blanche promise. It is not a blank check for the disciples, as it were. There is a context in which this promise is given. First of all, it's a context about God's glory. In these passages, doesn't Christ say that very explicitly in the one, I'll give you whatever you ask so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
as the son intercedes for his disciples and answers his, answer his request, he will answer requests that he knows are going to bring glory to the Father. Furthermore, what does he say? He says that the condition is that these prayers are asked in his name. Whatever you ask in my name, he says, I will do it. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Well, first of all, it doesn't mean that every prayer that Christians say have to end with, in Jesus' name at the end. I I know we think that sometimes, but the the phrase, in Jesus' name, is not a magic formula. It's not as if the the prayer is not an incantation, and it doesn't work if you don't say abracadabra at the end. It doesn't work that way, okay? It's okay just to stop and not say, in Jesus' name, because praying in Jesus' name is not about... It's not about ending your prayers with that phrase as if somehow it's all going to malfunction if you don't have that at the end. Rather, it's about the kind of things you pray for. Praying in Jesus' name means, first of all, you pray in accord for what Jesus' name stands for. What kind of man was Jesus? What were the kind of things that he prayed for? What does his life look like? Are you praying in keeping with that? Secondly, it means you pray in a way that reflects the lordship of Christ over your life. You are praying in a way that acknowledges... It is his kingdom come and not my own that I am seeking. Finally, it means you pray just as Jesus himself prayed for God's glory. So then, when we pray in light of that promise, understanding it now, where should our confidence be? Three things, I think. First, we should have confidence in God's acceptance. When we pray, we should have confidence in God's acceptance. Remember this. God does not accept you because of the fruit you produce. In an ultimate sense, God doesn't love you because you're praying right or becoming more holy. God loves you despite your sin, and he sent his son to prove it. God delights to take rebels like us and love them to the point they become faithful servants. And so it's essential that When we hear this powerful invitation to pray, it is coming to those who already have fellowship with the Father. You are already accepted by God in Christ. So if you are here this morning and you are thinking this whole time, I have a shallow prayer life, it's okay. You're not saved because of your prayer life. You can grow in your prayer life. You can deepen in your walk with God. You, 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 even when you feel bored and like for 30 minutes the words are bouncing off the ceiling, it, it's okay. You can, you can continue to pray or you can pray again tomorrow. God does not accept you on the basis of your prayer life or on the fruit that you produce. He accepts you on the basis of Christ. Therefore, you need not worry about God casting you off. If we need help in our prayers, if we feel as if we don't know how to do it, we don't do it well, we ask for help and we keep going. Secondly, we pray with confidence in God's word. We pray with confidence in God's word. What did Jesus tell his disciples? That they produce fruit by abiding in him. How do they abide? They abide by keeping in his love. And furthermore, in verse 10 and in verse 16, the promise is given that if his word abides in us, then we can ask whatever we want and God will hear it. In other words, the key to successful, confident prayer is that our prayer will be driven by God's own word. We can be sure that we are praying in Jesus' name by looking to his word. It not only guides our own lives so that our prayers will be heard, but it also shapes the very content of our prayers that we offer. Listen to a couple other people in the Bible. James says, you do not ask and you do not receive 
excuse me, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Think that's happened to you? I know it's happened to me. You're asking for the wrong thing. You're asking with selfish motive. James says, God's not going to give you that. John the Apostle says, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we, do, we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Do you want your prayers to be answered more? Then try obedience. Try, try actually obeying God. My kids will come and they'll ask me, hey, can we do this? And I say, no. And sometimes they get indignant. They say, why not? And I say, well, what kind of a week have you had? In normal circumstances, I mean, even now, I I would love to do that for you. But you don't need it. It's not essential to your life, and you've been incredibly disobedient. Why would I want to encourage that by giving you something extra, by giving you something more? Likewise, why would God want to deceive you into thinking you you can live a life of disobedience and running far from him by answering your every request? Is he sometimes still gracious and answers us when we don't deserve it? Absolutely. But he need not. And still be a loving and just God. The psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. How does that work? Simply this, if you're delighting yourself in the Lord, then his desires will be your desires. God's word therefore transforms our lives so that we will be more Christ-like. It rewires the thinking in our minds and creates new desires in our hearts. Paul says in Romans 12 that The more this renewal takes place in our minds, the more we will be able to discern the will of God. And again, John the Apostle says this, 1 John 5, This is the confidence we have toward God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And hearing does not just mean God acknowledges a prayer is coming in. It means hearing in a way that He will respond and answer the prayer. Therefore, pray from the Word of God. Have confidence that from his word, God will not only change you, but change your prayers. Finally, when you pray, have confidence in God's wisdom. Have confidence in God's wisdom. George Bailey from the movie It's a Wonderful Life. If you watch it more than at Christmas time, it kind of ruins it, I'll just tell you. Uh, I found that out in high school. We had cable, and I liked that movie, and Turner... One of the Turner Networks had it like every other month, and I watched it over and over again, and I was like, man, i got to stop watching this. I got bored. I, I took off a couple of years, and I watched it again. It was great all over again. It's one of the greatest movies ever made. George is a dreamer, if you haven't seen it. He has lofty goals and plans. He wants to travel the world and live life to the fullest. Yet at every turn, his dream is denied. In the end, he comes to a point where he believes he is just a loser and a failure and he plans to commit suicide. And yet God graciously intervenes and in fact, in a very creative way, proves that George has actually left an indelible mark on the city in which he lives, on the friends and family that he has, and in fact through them, the entire world showing, despite what George thinks, he has had a wonderful life. I think many of us feel like George Bailey when it comes to our prayer life though. We wrestle and we pray and we don't see anything happening. The skies seem silent and we don't get what we want and we wonder if God even cares or if he's even listening to us. But we need not feel that way when we remember who God is and the promise he's given us in this passage. On one level, of course, James is right when he says, you do not have because you do not ask. It doesn't matter how bad you wish for something, how bad you want something to happen. Have you actually prayed and asked God for it? Or you just assume that, that he knows you want and it's going to happen one way or the other. There is, there is something specific about the asking 
that reminds us this has come from God's hand and leads us into thankfulness. If you don't ask, maybe that's why you don't have. But on the other hand, there will be times when God says no. No. Not just wait. Sometimes that's a response too. Sometimes you pray for decades and finally God gives you what you ask for. You think, man, what took so long? But sometimes he just says, no, I, I, I'm not going to give you that thing. How, how should we think then? We should continue to believe that God is good. We should have confidence in his wisdom. Think about it like this. I've told this story before. It's such a great story on many levels. Jonathan Edwards, longtime pastor, uh, the, towards the end of his life, he has gone out to, same guy who wrote the book I mentioned earlier, he's gone out to be a missionary among the, the American Indians in New England in the mid to late 1700s. And his daughter is fearful for his life, and she keeps having this dream, a nightmare, where she wakes up because this Indian arrow flies into the window and strikes her father in the heart and kills him. And he goes to console her, and he writes her a letter, and he says not, not to worry, but to trust God, that he is good and he is sovereign. And he says this at one point in the letter, if God has ordained that arrow to strike me in the heart, I should not want it to miss. In other words, if God is truly good and sovereign, and that's what he wants to happen, why would I want something different? Now think about that in reverse. What if God's will is for your your request to be denied? What if the thing that will bring the church and the world the most good and God's name the most glory is for God to say no to your prayer? Would you still want him to say yes? No. No. And as God is patiently growing us more and more to the image of Christ, bringing our will into conformity to his and teaching us to rightly pray in Jesus' name, we continue to have confidence in God's wisdom, knowing that even if we don't get what we want, if things are not turning out the way we think that they should, God is wiser than we are. And God is good. And we pray with confidence, your will be done, whatever that is, knowing that God will do what is good and just and wise, whether to saying yes or no to our request. There's so much more we could say here about prayer, but I want to end with this testimony from D.A. Carson in an article he wrote entitled, The Summer I Learned to Pray. Here's what he says. Home from university where I was studying undergraduate chemistry and mathematics, I spent my time earning money and learning to pray. Earning money was the easy part. The praying part became possible because of the arrival in town of a new pastor, freshly minted from seminary, single as I was and happy to renew a friendship that we had struck up two years earlier. He invited me to meet with him every Monday evening so that we could pray together. The first few Mondays were tough. I found myself running out of things to say after the first few minutes. So many of my prayers sounded like wish lists. I'd had the good fortune to be reared in a godly home, and I knew the language. But after three weeks or so, this pastor quietly suggested the following Monday he would start to teach me how to pray. At our next meeting, after a half hour of Bible reading and praise, he asked, What then shall we pray for tonight? It so happened that I had just received a letter from a young woman whom I will call Jane. The pastor and I both knew her from our time in another city. Jane's life had been a mess before God had gloriously saved her. Now three years later, she was dying of cancer and was not expected to live more than a few weeks. Her letter was full of bitterness, hurt, and fear. What then should we pray for her? Lord, heal Jane? Lord, rebuke Jane for her bitterness? Lord, take her home quickly? She's already suffered so much? Or how about the usual prayer when we don't know? Lord, bless Jane. The pastor helped me think through each of these and other options. Certainly we could ask that God would heal Jane, just as children ask their father for something good. God could heal her, and we should ask. 
But God hasn't pledged to bring instant restoration to all who ask for it. Was there something that we should pray for for Jane that was in line with God's own promises for his people? Something that we could claim with confidence on James' behalf. As the pastor led me through scripture after scripture, I was struck by the number and the beauty of the passages promising that God will keep his own people, that he will bring fruit from their lives. We may be confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on until the day of Christ Jesus. The pastor and I were both convinced that God had genuinely begun a good work in Jane's life. Now we would petition God to keep his promise and carry it on in the life of Jane. In a similar way, the pastor led me through several other matters of prayer, trying to get me to think biblically about what we should be praying for in each case. We would read passages from Scripture that we thought relevant to each issue at hand. Then we would set ourselves to pray through the list that we had generated, quoting God's promises back to God. I left believing that what I had begun to learn was how to intercede before the throne of God. That was Monday evening. On Thursday, I received a letter from Jane, written on Tuesday morning. She had awakened that morning, she wrote, deeply ashamed of her doubt and her ingratitude. It was wonderful that God had saved her. And now if he wanted to take her home, why, that must be the best and the wisest thing. And she would praise him in her home going. The entire letter was a hymn of praise. Jane died six weeks later. Carson goes on to say, I almost hesitate to tell the story of the weekly prayer sessions. It is dramatic, and my times of prayer have not always been dramatic. But I am sure of this. The intimacy between the believer and Jesus Christ is an intimacy whose fruit is the result of prayer under Christ's lordship. What is necessary then is an increasing knowledge of the scriptures so that we may learn how to pray with confidence in Jesus' name. Father, that is our desire this morning as your people. It is a desire to pray confidently in Jesus' name, not trusting in ourselves and in our wisdom, but in the promises that you have given to us. That life of abiding fruit that we have in him would be the incubator for bold and trusting prayers to you, believing the promises that you have given to your people. Father, it is so easy for us to feel adrift in our prayers, not knowing what to pray, and certainly... We understand what Paul says in Romans 8, that there are times when we we simply groan because we don't know what to pray for. The circumstances are so devastating and, and dire, and we trust that your spirit takes that and turns it into right prayers. But God, more often than not, we simply find ourselves adrift in our prayer life because we do not know your word well enough. So God, I pray over these last two weeks as we have, we have seen these the importance of these twin pillars, that you will bring them together in our mind hearing from you and your word and praying back to you, God. Praying with wisdom and confidence in Jesus' name because we have sought to abide in him and have his word abide in us. In this way, God, may we pray in such a way that we would abide much fruit and that that fruit would be lasting and that it would bring glory to your name. Amen.